you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, today, as you see on the screen, we begin a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we will be walking through over the next nine weeks, leading us up to, uh, leading us up to Advent, we'll be walking through chapter 5. And so we're looking forward to this, uh, this new time in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we read the text, would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that we are able to gather here this morning and to worship you. We exalt you in this place. It is our desire, Father, that our lives would be brought in line with your word. That we would live lives of submission to your goodness so that we might display your glory in the midst of our communities, our workplaces, our family, even in the midst of this nation and all nations. And Father, we want for your name to be magnified and praised. And so as we look into your word this morning, we ask that you would teach us as you taught the disciples. We pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our minds to understand the truth of your word. God, would you Cultivate our hearts to love the truth of your word and our minds to comprehend the truth of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased. So now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is Discipleship in the Kingdom of Heaven. And as we look over the next several weeks at the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5 through chapter 7, but this morning we'll spend our time in verses, their first four verses. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most significant sermon ever preached for the church. In fact, one scholar said, in the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity... The Sermon on the Mount has been considered an epitome of the teaching of Jesus and therefore, for many, the essence of Christianity. I don't know that we could really overestimate the importance of the Sermon on the Mount for Christian living. And yet, many Christians are ignorant of its theological significance for practical daily life. Have you ever walked into someone's home and noticed a bowl of fruit sitting on the counter sitting on the table maybe, and you walk over and you're, gonna, you're going to pick up one of these pieces of fruit and eat it, and then when you pick it up, you realize that it's fake, and it's so frustrating. Isn't it amazing that we can superficially craft fruit to look better than the real fruit? Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount reveals the difference between the superficial and the real fruit of righteousness. No matter, no, matter how, no matter how good the fruit of one's life might look, the true measure of fruit in a person's life must first be brought about by internal transformation. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus speaks to the issue of righteousness, and he's, he's speaking to the heart of this internal transformation, and he says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think there are two realities that we need to come to grips with as we approach Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first reality is that only the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. He defines for us who the righteous are and who the righteous aren't in some way. He at least says that they must have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we know the scribes and Pharisees would put on the external adornment of righteousness. They would be like the fake fruit in the bowl. The second reality is that many on that day who thought their deeds were righteous will find out that they're actually banished from God's glorious and merciful presence. So I think as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, and even in our text today, we should all take a cautious, introspective look at our own lives before holy God. And the point that Jesus will make is that righteousness is the result of God's blessing and not the requirement for God's blessing. Righteousness is the result of God's blessing, not the requirement for God's blessing. So I want to invite you to read with me in the first four verses of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. One question we might ask as we consider Jesus' teaching on righteousness and him saying that only those who are righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven is what must, how does one become righteous? How does one become righteous? And to answer that question, we need to look at Matthew's gospel. For that's really the theological point of his whole gospel. And the answer to that question is Jesus is the promised deliverer, the promised redeemer, and Savior of God's people. And the righteous are those who follow Him. Matthew's intentional to show us that Jesus is the new Moses, whose supremacy outshines Moses. And so Matthew actually likens Jesus to Moses in three ways, beginning in verse 1 of the Sermon on the Mount. First, he highlights Jesus' ascent on the mountain. And that points us to Moses' ascent to Mount Sinai in order to receive the Ten Commandments, the law of God in Exodus 19.3. So he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. In fact, it's the same language that's used in the Septuagint in Genesis or in uh, Exodus 19.3. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the New Testament's written in Greek. Matthew uses the same, same phrase to point us back to him being, Jesus being Moses, the better Moses. Also, there's a definite article, the, the, the word the, it points us to the importance of the mountain. It's not just any mountain, it's a mountain that typifies Mount Sinai, where Moses went to receive the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus' posture on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain, and he sits down, like Moses would sit down to receive the Ten Commandments. And so as a new Moses, Matthew is telling us 
As Moses was a redeemer for God's people, Matthew is telling us, he's pointing us to see that Jesus is the redeemer. He is the new Moses. He is the supreme savior who will deliver his people, not from slavery to bondage in Egypt, but slavery and bondage to sin. And he will teach them. Just as Moses led the people through the wilderness, Jesus will teach his people how to walk faithfully and obediently following God. And so in verse 2, it says that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. The word taught, or the verb there for taught, it's different than what was used in chapter 4, verses 17 and verse 24. In chapter 4, verse 17 and 24, it's the word caruso, and it means preach. Jesus was proclaiming. It has this evangelistic feel. He was preaching the gospel telling people how to enter into the kingdom of God. But here in chapter 5, there's a transition where he takes his disciples aside and he uses this verb, didasco, which means to teach. And it has this understanding of Jesus' equipping. He's teaching his disciples. So he's not teaching us about how one enters the kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus is teaching us about what it means to be in the kingdom of God, how the character and conduct of one who is a disciple is to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So this means that instead of viewing the Beatitudes... As commands for righteous living, we view them as realities for kingdom living. This is the reality of what should be in the life of a disciple, of a a kingdom citizen. It's the difference between asking, what must I do to be an architect? And, as an architect, what is my work? Two different questions. The answer to the first one, one must complete years of schooling. One must complete intense study for testing and certification and so on and so forth. But to answer the second, to answer the second is, what is my work? One has freedom within his or her vocation to design and to enjoy seeing their design brought to life. So it is for the disciple, having been freed from slavery to sin, He or she is free to live according to God's design, exhibiting a progressive righteousness in character and conduct as Jesus taught. Why? So that the world, which God has not yet fully transformed, as Pastor Andrew mentioned earlier, might, look at this, 516, might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you see, the first Beatitudes, Jesus begins to deal with how we are in our relation to God and then our relation to man. And so here's what I want us to see this morning. If the church is to be successful in its mission for Christ, if the church is to be successful in its mission for Christ, this is the first point on the slide, believers must be singularly focused in their submission to Christ. If the church is to be successful in its mission for Christ, believers must be singularly focused in their submission to Christ. If you're taking notes, I'll give you just a second to write that down. There are two characteristics of kingdom citizens that I want us to see this morning in the Sermon on the Mount and in these Beatitudes. First, kingdom citizens 
see their unworthiness in light of Christ's supremacy. Kingdom citizens see their unworthiness in light of Christ's supremacy. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with grace. Do you notice this? Each beatitude begins with the pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This word blessed or blessed, maybe you hear it pronounced, means happy. It means fortunate. One who is granted favored status with God. These are the ones who live counterculturally in submission to the call of Christ. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is central to being a true disciple of Christ. It literally means to be lacking in spiritual worth. And it comes from the verb to cower or to bow down timidly. And so get what Jesus is saying. He's saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The picture is of a, a beggar pleading for coins. One who's destitute and, 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 and is in complete dependence on someone else to provide for what they need. The poor in spirit are those who realize their unworthiness before God. They're spiritually bankrupt. And their only hope is to trust God alone for salvation. The one who's poor in spirit realizes that it's only by God's grace toward us in Christ that we can enter into his presence. And if you think differently, I assure you that when each of us stand before the living, infinitely holy, all-powerful, majestic, sovereign God, and we see him face to face, we will feel nothing of our entitlement, nothing of our deservedness, nothing of our sinful pride. We will feel nothing but unworthiness to be there. This was a conviction of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said, if anyone feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. And so what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, the one who adopts this attitude about himself. John Stott calls the Beatitudes the beautiful attitudes. And Jesus is saying the one who sees herself as a spiritual pauper is the one who's blessed. This means that we empty ourselves of all things that might prompt us to consider ourselves worthy of coming before God. It means that before we say, why me, God, first we say, why not me? It means I surrender anything of my sinful pride that says I'm good enough or I deserve better or I've done enough. And it means we cast ourselves completely and totally on the grace and mercy of God in Christ. This is the heart of justification by faith alone, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, this is what Paul points out. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Right? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. You see, the point Jesus is making is that this attitude, this beatitude, it calls us to put self aside, to be 
poor in spirit and to entrust ourselves to him. This gospel, this attitude undercuts the culture of our day, doesn't it? This is not what you hear in the culture. The kingdom of God is countercultural to the world. The kingdom of God says, in fact, you are not good enough. You must surrender. It's only by Christ that you are made good. It's only by Christ that you're given righteousness and able to enter into God's presence. And it's for this reason that we realize this and say, then, yes, yes, we are poor in spirit. We don't deserve to come into the presence of Almighty God. But it's the kingdom of the world that says, you're great the way you are. You can make your own way to God. Whether it's Frank Sinatra with I Did It My Way or Lady Gaga singer hit Born This Way. Every generation asserts their own moral worth, their own moral compass against God's. And as Romans 1 says, they exchange the truth for a lie. In the third stanza of that great hymn that we sang this morning, Rock of Ages, this thought is captured. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I'm foul, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Isn't this what Peter said to Jesus? Wash me, not just my feet, wash all of me then. (laughs) Do you feel this sense of poverty before God, believer? We should. The glorious hope of God's salvation in Christ is that Jesus paid our sin debt and has given us an alien righteousness so that we bring a surrendered life to him. Are you bringing a surrendered life to Jesus, your king, this morning? I pray that we are. And if we're not, I pray that we will. There is a reward for those who are poor in spirit. And that reward, notice he says in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, theirs is currently the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel is understood in two ways. Some say more, but two basic ways. And there's both here, the, the future and the present. The future hope, it's a future hope of our inheritance. And in one sense... The kingdom of heaven has come with the inauguration of Christ's birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sending of the Spirit. But on the other hand, when Christ returns, there will be a consummation of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the ultimate fulfillment that verse 4 points us to. It is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. And that is our perfection. On the great day, the final day of judgment, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate the righteous from the wicked. And as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen, this is the believer's hope in Christ, that one day, this is what Jesus is going to say to all who are in Christ. Come, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. 
But here Jesus speaks, verse 3 and verse 10, in the present tense. And I want you to see the present hope that he's speaking to. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In verses 4 through 9, all of the reward or the promise is future tense. But here in verse 3 and in verse 10, it's present. And he's speaking to God's present reign and power. God's reign is present now and his power is active now in the church and in the lives of believers. And so all who come to him saying they are poor in spirit, get what he's saying. It's it's them for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now and in the future. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God, make it a priority, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Chrysostom, the early church father, said, even before heaven, Christ commands us to make earth heaven, and while living on earth to conduct ourselves as citizens there. Matthew 6. I think Andrew read my sermon notes before he shared his, uh, his prayer of confession. Because in Matthew 6, here's what Jesus says. Thy kingdom come, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then praise for power. Lead us not, teaches the disciples, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This means that Christ's disciples place God's rule as the highest priority over our lives. The power and the presence of the kingdom of God then enables disciples to live and to experience heavenly realities in this earthly journey. This comes by the Spirit of God. So Jesus would say to his disciples, come to me, all who are weary. Right? Experience my rest. Know my presence. And in Matthew 28, he would say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Here's my power. Now go. Make disciples. You see, God's present power and reign are manifested in the church through righteousness. And the way of kingdom living for the disciple of Christ is to be poor in spirit. Not by looking at ourselves, but by constantly looking to God and seeing His accomplishment of our salvation through Christ. You see, the one who's poor in spirit trades her bankruptcy, her spiritual bankruptcy for the riches of Christ. If the church is to be successful in its mission, believers must be singularly focused, single-minded in submission to Christ. So first we see our unworthiness in light of Christ's supremacy. But secondly, kingdom citizens see their hopelessness in light of God's hopeful promise In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning that he speaks of here literally is the experience of deep grief that a person feels after the death of a loved one. And in this mourning, Jesus calls us to brokenness over personal and corporate sin. You see, the effects of sin in a believer's life are devastating. The reality is 
Our sin alienates us not only from the community of faith, it alienates us from God. Sin quenches the Spirit of God in our lives. Sin causes us to suffer at the hands of others. Sin even brings about the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12. And so Jesus invites us to mourn. Mourn over our sin. Mourn over the sins of God's people. And to repent and to long for forgiveness and for healing. You see, as we grow in holiness and righteousness, I think we're made doubly aware of our sin problem. Not that we sin more. We simply grow in our understanding of the hopelessness of our fallen nature. And we realize how utterly sinful we are next to a holy, righteous God. And sin, sin should pain the believer. It should pain us because it produces alienation from God and because it's a serious thing and because we must not grow callous to sin in our lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, the promise of this beatitude is that the sorrow we experience in our alienation from God, in our alienation from His presence, like the children of Israel experienced exile from God's presence, the sorrow we experience in our alienation from God's presence will be replaced by the joy of being brought near to the presence of God and entering into His presence. And this blessing comes through the work of Jesus Christ alone. The verb used here, they shall be comforted. It speaks of the future where ultimately God does the work of comforting his people. This is why though James says for the here and now, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn. And weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Church, it's God's grace toward me that transforms my mourning over sin into praise. How could God love a sinner such as I? How could he look upon me with favor and grant me entrance into his kingdom? Someone asked me, what's the greatest fear I have when I step into the pulpit? thought for a minute and I came up with an answer but I think even the greater fear would be that you would know my heart you would see my heart as I really am perhaps that's your greatest fear as well that others would see your heart as you really are we have a merciful and gracious God who loves us who is patient with us 
who comes to us in the midst of our sin and forgives us and gives us this promise only by Christ, this hopeful promise, so that we who are hopeless might become hopeful. Believer, when is the last time that you mourned over your sin? When is the last time that you didn't take God's grace for granted? When was the last time you mourned over the sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? When was the last time that you felt a sense of unworthiness as you entered into prayer in God's presence? This is a reality check this morning for us. Our ultimate hope is coming, Christ. And on that day, as Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But for now, for now there is a walk of discipleship. There is this reality of kingdom living for kingdom citizens. And we need God's grace to break our callous, stony hearts. We need God's grace to radically transform our hearts. To break us over our sin. So that we might be singularly focused in submission to Christ. And the church might be successful in its mission for Christ. I want to invite you this morning to consider your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you living a life of surrender and submission? Do you consider yourself as poor in spirit when you approach him and enter his presence? Are you mourning over your sin? One sense I'm excited about the Sermon on the Mount as I began preach, but as I began studying it this week, I became dreadfully aware of how how close it cuts. And so I want to challenge you this morning before the Lord to consider these things and to surrender. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you can do that this morning by confessing of your sin, repenting, professing faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, and surrendering your life to Him. I want to invite you to do that this morning if that's where you are. For the church, I want to invite you to spend time in prayer seeking the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is sharp. It's a double-edged sword and it pierces to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it discerns the truths and intents of our hearts. And Lord, we're not interested in being like the fake fruit that looks good on the outside but is hollow on the inside. We want our lives to count for your glory. And so, Lord, purge us of our sin. Bring us to the breaking point of mourning over our sin. God, as we come before you this morning, we come saying and declaring that we know we are destitute and we don't deserve to be in your presence. We are like spiritual paupers. We are begging, Father, for your mercy and grace. And we ask, God, that you would meet us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, that you would forgive us, that you would bring healing upon us. And, God, that you would 
strengthen us to walk with you. As we humble ourselves, God, that you would exalt us by your hand. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?